Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 40 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialist RNQ and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. In the second half of this episode we will have the latest installment of our quarterly investment update from friends of the podcast London Capital which I know is very popular with a number of our listeners and we are also going to be doing something slightly different with our captive owner interview so do stay tuned for all of that. Our guest co-host today is a man known by most I would imagine particularly in the North American captive markets and that is Stephen Bauman, Global Programs and Captive Director of the Americas for AXA XL. Steve is based in New Jersey, just over the Hudson River from New York, and is a longtime friend of the podcast. Steve, welcome to the pod. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here. Fantastic. I'm glad we've uh, finally got you into the uh, guest co-host seat. Uh, Steve did appear on a podcast episode in around August or September, I believe, last year, Steve. We did it at VCA, didn't we, when we could all be together in person. I remember it well. Good, good. We had a bit of background noise there. It's actually a lot clearer now that we're doing it virtually, which is ironic. How uh, how has 2020 been for you then, Steve? It's been bizarre for all of us, but how, how has it kind of been for you and how has it changed your interaction with clients and, and colleagues and, and your peers as well? Wow, yeah, thanks. Um, 2020 has been, uh, been off the charts challenging mm. uh, in, in, in so many ways. You know, for, first, my heart goes out to all those families and uh, and people that are, are personally inflicted by, by this virus. It's, it's a troubling thing. You know, it's probably, I presume it's the first time since World War II that uh, the entire world has been so dramatically affected by mm-hmm. a common event. I mean, it's, it's truly extraordinary, uh, you know, that uh, that we're all working through this. But, uh, you know, now is the time that, that our profession, risk management professionals, need to rise to the occasion. And I think uh, by doing so, yes, it's going to be challenging and yes, it's going to be different. But by doing so, I mean, this is this is our occasion to, to rise up in our profession and and, and bring solutions you know, to, 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 mm. to how we can to help, you know, businesses and corporations uh, get through this. And I think, you know, I think we're up to the challenge. So it's um, it's I get nobody expected this. Um, and if you did, you you really had uh, tremendous foresight. But yeah, what what a what a what a change a year makes. Yeah, obviously we've had uh, a few virtual events this year. We've had things. I know that you were involved with VCIA, like myself, uh, this year. How have you found those kind of virtual conferences? I guess it's just nice to be able to have something to connect to the people that we would be seeing on a, on a more regular basis, face to face. Yeah, obviously, you know, we're all remote and we're all virtual, right? So, um, you know, I I think the interaction, like the VCIA, was uh, was done very well. I think they did a good job getting getting out of the gate early, recognizing that um, this was going to be a long-term event, and they immediately uh, went to um, start the plan virtually. Uh, I think they had a they had an excellent platform, and and we as an exhibitor and a participant and a sponsor um, had really good access into all the folks that did participate, and I, I thought I thought it went extremely well, uh, you know, given that uh, we were all remote and. You know, and I guess, you know, the, the counterbalance to, you know, everybody not being able to be there, um, maybe it opens up, to, you know, to, to more folks on a, on, a, on a broader, diverse area of individuals who could never get maybe to Vermont, but could participate virtually. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, there's been some reorganization at AXA XL in the past few weeks, and particularly regarding the global programs and, and the captives team. Lots of uh, familiar faces still in the roles we, we know, but how how has your role changed at all? I noticed we've got a, a slightly new type job title for you. 
Yeah, we do. You know, at XXL, we, we've realigned operations uh, to effectively enhance the delivery of our, our products and services uh, to a more regionalized and localized manner. So effectively, it, it brings, um, you know, our assets closer uh, with our products and services to our brokers and our clients, you know, where they are, where they work. And, um, you know, I think it's a good thing. You know, we, we obviously we're, we're a large global company, but, you know, our business is still very personal and um, lends itself to, to have its assets and its resources uh, as close to the client and broker as possible. Now, you know, position that also, too, with every bit, everything being virtual. But, you know, I think we'll come through that and, uh, you know, having our assets on the ground you know, closer to clients and uh, brokers is going to be really effective. For me personally, uh, it's actually uh, expanded uh, my territory in that, you know, historically I was I was uh, focused on North America. Uh, now my focus is all the Americas, uh, yeah. you know, but but essentially I work virtually through a lot of a lot of teams that are situated all through the Americas who have, you know, the capabilities of bringing our products and services around captives to the brokers and clients locally. Fantastic. Yeah, we, we have had, uh, talking about the Americas, we have had an episode last year, which had a bit of a focus on the Latin American market. I'm keen to do some more, you know, have some more coverage of that region. So cause I think that's a bit like the Asia Pac region. You know, there's great uh, potential in, in new formations coming out of the, the Latin America region. So definitely uh, one to get your teeth into, I'm sure. Um, we're hearing a lot about new formation activity from across regions and domiciles you know europe has been traditionally flat for a long time but we're seeing definite activity in uh, both onshore and offshore european domiciles and alan charnley was our was our last guest co-host in, in gcp 39 who i know you know well and she reported that marsh alone had formed 76 new captives in the first half of 2020 and i believe that is a record for them and, and usually the second half of the year is was when things really get busy on the formation front particularly in in north america steve what i'm interested to hear is as a fronter and reinsurance partner, we talk a lot about how you work with existing captives. Obviously, captive managers do lots of the feasibility study work, but how do you support captives if you come into contact with clients who are setting up a captive or, or, or a captive manager or broker brings a client to you and says this person's involved or considering setting up a captive? What kind of role as a fronter and reinsurance partner would Axor XL be playing? You know, I, I listened to that episode and I thought it was excellent. You know, I, I do know Ellen well, and I thought you guys had a, a, a great discussion. You know, we, we work with uh, captives of all ages, right? And so, you know, captives uh, in the industry are, are in such a great place now, whereas, you know, there are so many captives that are so mature, they have great capital and surplus, and they have great experience in kind of taking on all these challenges. But the question you bring up about uh, new formations, yeah, are off the charts this year, and, it, and it's no surprise. You know, obviously, Marsh has seen that, and we saw that in their report, and, and a bunch of others are seeing that as well. Uh, and we get we get involved in several ways. One, as a as a front company and a co-insurer and reinsurer, uh, during the feasibility process and in new formations, uh, it's not unusual for the consultant, captive consultants, and clients to kind of reach out to us and kind of bounce things off us off of us about you know potential fronting opportunities, and and our abilities to maybe put policies out around the world you know, as a partner with the captive. So, so we do play that role. And, and we, you know, we, we, we personally, uh, as a company, we don't do feasibility studies. We, 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 we leave that to the captive consultant experts and the brokers who, who do that and, and do it well. 
uh, but we provide our input uh, around the potential, uh, you know, challenges or not of, of fronting. And, you know, obviously we run a global network uh, that has the capability to, to front for so many lines of business uh, for a captive that we kind of bring some of that expertise in and that knowledge as they're going through the process. Uh, you know, it's working with kind of newer captives and startups is always more challenging uh, than working with a mature kind of stable captive that's been around mm. for a long time. Uh, you know, they're challenged by not only capital and surplus uh, constraints at times, but they're challenged, you know, with the organizations who are running them and who may not be so familiar with running a captive. So there's definitely challenges involved in new captive formations and setting up new programs with them. But, you know, they've been so prevalent this year and in recent years, there's so many more formations now that, um, you know, we're, we're getting more comfortable, you know, every year with them. And, you know, and there's great business going in there. You know, the, the amount of products that we have the capabilities of fronting for and, and co-insuring and reinsuring are really broad in the industry. You know, it's, it's really all of our products uh, have the capability of having a captive involved. So, you know, my, uh, you know my, my edict throughout the company is working with all of our underwriting groups and the potential to use their products with captives. Uh, so it's not limited to kind of, the, you know, just the more traditional stuff. Anything that we underwrite, we have the capability of in, uh, including a captive in. I'm really looking forward to seeing the numbers that come out from the end of this year. It used to be one of my jobs at Captive Review to kind of count captives as we as we would call it. And I'm just yeah, looking forward to seeing what numbers business insurance and others produce in February, March time to see just how much this has all materialized. I mean, the, the indications from that Marsh report tell me that it really is materializing. This interest is turning into, re into real numbers and, and real formations. Well, it's time to do something a little bit different, and I thought I would take the opportunity in our 40th episode to remind listeners of our extensive back catalogue of captive owner interviews, which are all available to revisit or discover for the first time. Since GCP was launched in March 2019, we have featured conversations with more than 40 captive owners who are extremely generous in sharing their expertise, strategy and insight. What follows now are several short clips from a variety of interviews over the past six months, beginning with Frank Barron, Group Deputy Director of Risk Management and Insurance at International SOS, who have a captive in Singapore. Speaking to me in GCP 27, we join Frank as he explains how they have used the captive to respond to the hard market. We said we have the captive. The captive is already involved in a few different programs. So we, we do both PNC and employee benefits. And we, we, we decided to leverage on this existing tool to buffer partially, to stomach partially a little bit of the, uh, of the stupidity of the hardening market, if you, if you allow me the expression. Uh, because we do believe that we have a good risk profile. We do believe that we have a good risk management track record. And what is, what is expected from the market today in terms of premium? is not relevant to our risk profile and our, and our loss history. And uh, so, so I'm fighting against a few carriers to, to go back to something a bit more sensible. Not easy, uh, because they are definitely looking at uh, more money, especially now with COVID-19 impacting them on, on different businesses and different ground. So, 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 so yes, that, that's the first thing to do is to, you can, you can leverage on a, on a, on a captive to, to stomach uh, a lack of appetite from the market. But the thing is that you need to have the captive in place first and you need the captive to be up and running first with some good uh, financial, some uh, good creditworthiness 
And, and I would say, more importantly, the right facility internally in terms of engaging with your critical uh, uh, stakeholders so that uh, the right decision can be made at the right time to, uh, to react to markets. So I, I like the idea that our own captive, for instance, is used on a very dynamic mode. So we are not saying that, uh, let's say, our corporate insurance program, ABC, uh, will be reinsured uh, into our captive partially or fully forever. But for the timing, we consider that that's the right time for the captive to be used. So I like the, the fact that you can have a dynamic approach, but for that, you need also to have the, the proper uh, conversation with your final decision makers uh, in order to lead to the right decision. Okay, so let's go back to the United States now and hear from Jen Blair in GCP30, one of our most listened to episodes this year. Jen is Global Risk and Insurance Manager at headphone and audio giant Bose, and she told us all about their recent captive formation in Bermuda and their broader risk financing strategy. Yeah, so I joined, as I mentioned, in 2015, the risk and insurance role at Bose. And prior to that, it sat in legal. So a lot of our policies hadn't really been looked at from a financial perspective in a long time. And a lot of them were actually set up for the company we were in, you know, 1995, even they were just dated. And I really started to take a different look at them. And at that point, I didn't, as I mentioned, I didn't know anything about insurance, but the little that I had learned, it seemed as though a captive would make sense for the type of corporation Bose was. So I started to do a little bit of research. I went, I actually attended a Bermuda captive forum in Boston with the help of my friends at Morgan Stanley. They introduced me to a lot of folks. And from there, I went to the Bermuda conference that year and just learned. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know if it would make sense, but it seemed like it did. We worked with our broker at the time on a feasibility, and it turned out that it actually did make quite a bit of sense for us. Um, A little background on the feasibility. Our broker at the time was a longtime broker, and they had presented a captive to Bose many, many years ago. But again, it had sat in legal And the team wasn't really keen on it and did not think it would be a good fit. So they dusted it off and with leadership changes and support behind us and now looking at it from a financial lens, it definitely shifted the perspective. And we learned that a captive would be a really good fit for us. It was probably two years in the making before it came to light, but that's quite normal from my understanding. And when it did come to light, um, we actually got the captive up and running within six weeks. Um, We had some tax changes in the US and that really is what pushed Bose to move quite quickly on it because we were able to take some advantages of the tax reform and have a blended tax rate. And it was a lot of savings to the corporation by moving forward within that fiscal year. Now, in GCP 36, we were actually joined by a captive owner as our guest co-host, which I think was the first time. Lauren Nihal is Group Head of Insurance at ArcelorMittal and is also a firmer board member who takes the lead on many of their captive projects. I've known Lauren for quite some time and here he is telling me how the steel and mining multinational utilises their captive. And we use our captive with three main objectives, I would say. The first one is, of course, to minimise the total cost of risk. 
risk. So we use it, you know, in financing frequency, capturing underwriting profit, leveraging on the diversification effect from the group, economies of scale, and, and so on. Uh, the second objective is, is about optimizing risk transfer solution. So then we, we use your, our captive uh, for filling gaps, you know, removing specific uh, sub-exposure that the insurance market doesn't really want or overprice. Uh, we use it as a central underwriting tool for combining, for instance, different reinsurance solutions into one single insurance product for our entities uh, and that kind of, of, of potential solution. And the third objective is to use it as an operational tool for aligning our insurance solution uh, at group level. So meaning, you know, being sure that the deductible and the retention level we um, we get at the entities level is matching the group profile. Uh, it's also helped to harmonize the insurance standards we apply across the group and to ensure that every entity in any country can access the best potential insurance cover uh, thanks to the to the to the leverage on the group size. So I would say that's 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 quite you know usual objectives, and we do that with I would say two main principles is that we use our captive across all lines of business because we consider that these three objectives are applicable for all lines of business, and the second principle is we never use our captive without a proper risk transfer solution. So we always use it to support a risk transfer solution, meaning that we do not underwrite risk 100%. Uh, in our captive, except if if, in, if insurance is, is only needed for, I would say, paperwork or or, or just having certificate of cover. Uh, but the principle is always to use a captive to support a risk transfer solution. So captives are not just about the largest multinationals in the world. And in GTP 38, we welcome Tracy Hassett, president of Vermont Group Captive Ed Health, onto the pod to tell the story of Ed Health's formation and growth as it ensures medical stop loss for educational institutions across the United States. You know, we started with six colleges and universities. And again, I mentioned there were 22 who had uh, invested $50,000 each, we knew from the beginning that we weren't going to have 22 schools start in Ed Health. Many of the schools who invested were very, very large schools who were already self-insured and uh, who already had ways in which to save money uh, to include having your own medical centers and, and creating their own programs. So, uh, as you said, we we opened our virtual doors with six colleges and universities. Here we are uh, seven years later. We now have 23 members and owners. Uh, we also made the decision to expand beyond Massachusetts. We're in uh, four states. We're talking to schools across the country, and we've uh, expanded the makeup of the school. So when we first started talking about Ed Health, it, it was a group of administrators from colleges and universities. We're also um, fortunate that we have four charter school members in our area who have joined and are owners of Ed Health. And we're having conversations with several private secondary schools across the country as well. 
Well, if you hadn't heard some of those interviews before, then hopefully those short teasers will prompt you to scroll back through our back catalogue and check out any episodes you may have missed. We also now have a dedicated captive owner page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website, which signposts our archive of interviews. So please do check those out. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. We will be back with Stephen Bauman shortly, but I am delighted to say that with Q3 behind us, it is time to feature our quarterly investment update from London and Capital. Chris Diel, Executive Director, is joined by Punit Patel, Equity Fund Manager at the firm, to dissect developments over the last three months and highlight what to look out for next. So, so Punit, for looking back at the quarter, I think from a macroeconomic perspective, one of the biggest developments that we saw in, in Q3 really came from central banks as uh, monetary policy trumped fiscal policy, uh, which was a bit of a reversal from uh, from Q2, where we saw stimulus packages sort of dominating the news. Obviously, the Fed in the US has, has typically set the tone for, uh, for monetary policy. And in September, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, said that the Fed was moving towards flexible average inflation targeting, which apparently is a new approach to tackle their biggest concerns, which is slowing real growth trend and also falling real interest rates. So, Punit, can you help translate what this actually means uh, and what, what the approach uh, is likely to look like in practical terms? Sure. I think, um, I, I guess inflation targeting covers one side of the Fed's dual mandate, which is to maintain a stable currency, um, and on the other, which is to maintain full employment. Um, so, with the Fed, they were already sort of an unofficially in average inflation targeting mode having chosen in 2018 to emphasize a symmetric inflation target of 2%. So what it means is that so it would aim to overshoot for a target of 2% after periods of undershoots. More importantly, whereas previously the Fed would be willing to hike interest rates as the labor market approached their estimates of, of maximum employment, Powell has made it clear that uncertainty around these estimates mean that they may not be relied upon as much as it has done in the past. So what does this mean for asset prices? It sort of means that what matters continuously over the next few years will be easier financial conditions. So if the Fed wants to push inflation above 2% uh, for a prolonged period of time, um, it's, it's going to struggle to do that without easier financial conditions in in markets. So that will effectively support equity prices, um, it probably support a, a weaker US dollar um, and credit spreads. And also, along with that, the market's ability to absorb very high debt issuance. 
So will they succeed? The, the sort of fact remains that despite extremely accommodative monetary policy over the last decade or so, the Fed has not really managed to lift inflation back above 2% for very, for very long. Um, and actually, if you look at average inflation expectations measured by consumer surveys, the Fed's actually struggled to reach anywhere near the sort of 2.5% level. So despite the US reaching a sort of generational low level of unemployment in 2019, it struggled to maintain sort of the levels of inflation targeting that uh, had been policy over the last decade. So in, in conclusion, raising inflation targets is not necessarily a game changer. In fact, they're probably passing the buck back to fiscal policy. And the market pretty much already anticipates a zero US policy rate environment to mid-2022. And really going forward, the uncertainty around election outcomes will probably be a key driver in yield curve steepness, um, especially at the long end, which given the sort of rising odds of a democratic clean sweep will be sort of the focus in the next couple of months. Okay, thanks, Bernard. So the Fed has had a pretty patchy record of stimulating inflation over the last decade. But a lot of market commentators are now talking about inflation. They're worrying about inflationary pressures taking over, especially in light of, of the recent exceptional COVID stimulus. Is inflation something LNC are worrying about? And uh, what is our outlook for inflation? Yeah, so I think it's um, it's natural for market participants to look at skyrocketing money supply figures. I mean, I think M2 money supply growth in, in the US is sort of closer uh, to 24, 25% um, year on year, which I mean, is sort of astounding given sort of levels in the past. Um, and if you look at that, you're probably wondering whether that would result in a hyperinflationary environment. But I think it's also important to distinguish uh, the different types of easing. So I think uh, one one type of easing affects the real economy, whereas the other impacts financial asset markets. So Fed policy promoted sort of excess liquidity, which in its simplest form is the idea that there is more money in the financial system chasing the same uh, number of assets, uh, thereby pushing up asset prices. And, and you can see that in housing data um, in financial markets, whereas other types of government support, which have been through uh, sort of fiscal transfers, and that's really supported unemployment benefits uh, and really just replaced lost income. So I, I, I don't really think that a massive spike in inflation is is a likely outcome. And in fact, if you look at over the medium to longer term, inflation dynamics have been rather driven by population uh, changes, uh, which have been pretty defl- deflationary. So for the moment, we're high levels of unemployment and spare capacity, the risks are probably skewed to the downside. So it's with that backdrop then that Q3 in particular saw equities and equity markets in the US continue to rally over the summer months, while August and September saw fixed income yields really remaining relatively stable along with pricing. So what has happened in the equity markets over the summer? And what do you make of the recovery that we've seen so far uh, since the the lows, uh, the COVID lows of, of sort of March time. Yeah, I think um, the, the sort of last six to nine months has kind of been uh, quite surprising. I mean, if you look at even over the last decade, what strikes me as unusual is how the markets have, how financial markets have become quite vulnerable to sharp and sharp swings. Um, and I think that there's a, a, a sort of tangential question here where the sort of primarily the market participants have changed. You've got funds within risk parity CTAs becoming bigger drivers of of equity markets, and alongside that, sort of narrow liquidity in markets have certainly been a factor. Um, over the course of the year, we've seen the fastest market drawdown 
followed by the sharpest recovery ever in history. And no one would have guessed that over such a short period of time. So the market in the US has been propelled forward by a small proportion of stocks being the fangs within te- within the technology sector. Um, and these have been n- natural beneficiaries of the change- changes that have been pretty much forced upon us. So things like e-commerce and work from home have been big drivers of trends that were probably already in place before COVID, but have been massively accelerated. So I think uh, over the the last couple of months, we've witnessed this tussle between COVID beneficiaries and, and cyclicals. And that's certainly something to watch going forward um, over the next few months. Um, and while the, the US equity index has recovered uh, pretty much from, from lows, the breadth of recovery has not, uh, not been as large as one would think. And confidence around normalization could support a broader rally in equity markets. In terms of the bearish argument from here, one could point to uh, sort of higher price earnings multiples and the possible impact of uh, central banks if they took the, the foot off the pedal. But I, I don't necessarily prescribe to, to that view. And certainly, I would agree that valuations aren't cheap. But looking at valuations across a time series is fraught with quite a lot of difficulty and should rarely ever be done. Uh, the composition of the market has changed dramatically over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And comparing valuations across this period is, is far from accurate. Uh, when you think about it, the internet has only become sort of mainstream since the late 90s um, and early 2000s. So it's, it's difficult to assess the uh, differences in equity market valuations from a low capital intensity from a, a period of high capital intensity prior to that. One would argue that sort of corporate 101 or economics 101 would suggest that the, the likes of Microsoft, Apple, Amazon should no longer be um, earning excess profits. But what we've seen defies that sort of logic. And, and these are now sort of multi-trillion dollar businesses, which uh, will continue to earn uh, sort of high returns of capital for, for quite some time. And even looking back at sort of prior valuation bubbles, which I mean, the dot-com um, era was certainly one of them. And you saw bad quality companies, things like Ford, um, and other uh, sort of uh, auto producers trading on 40 times earnings, and we're clearly not at that sort of level of excess. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, there's certainly um, differences to to kind of uh, to take on the parts of equity markets which have rallied and and the parts that haven't. So those top five stocks that you mentioned, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google and Facebook, they've been driving the market forward this year and looking a bit closer at them over, over the summer, even you know, in the last uh, the last six weeks or so, we saw a particular uh, amount of increasing political pressure on those companies in the form of congressional hearings, reports into election interference, escalation of the of the app store monopoly argument going into the presidential election season. It seems like we're going to see a very close race, regardless of the polls. Of course, no one has a crystal ball, but what are the potential market implications that we're looking at? And could we see some disruption before the end of the year, particularly in those uh, those big companies? Yeah, so that, that's a very, very good question. And I, I think uh, what's interesting is that regardless of the sort of outcomes of the election, I think the scrutiny of big tech is going to be one of the areas of commonality across uh, both sides of the aisle. Um, and we've, we should soon have a antitrust report uh, on Alphabet, which is the owner of Google, um, and that's due out soon. I think it's an interesting article recently, which uh, came from, from Europe, was that Google had set up a, a system to promote competition on Android with uh, smaller search engines. And uh, since March, 
when you uh, have a new mobile mobile phone in Europe, you've been given the option of uh, choosing a search engine from sort of rival players. And actually, within within Europe, you've got two smaller search engines, one called DuckDuckGo and the other one called Ecosia. And the latest market shares for, for those uh, two search engines are, are 0.5% and 0.3% respectively. So you can just see how hard it is to break the dominance of large tech despite having regulatory measures on your site. So I think that sort of summarizing, I think it, it's very difficult even with regulatory measures to, to kind of promote competition. And, and I think there's just going to be an ongoing battle in, in this space. And, and I think most investors are, are pretty cognizant of, of this going forward. Great. Thanks, Puna. That's, that's really helpful and interesting insight for sure. Well, we won't have long to wait, I suppose, until uh, until the uh, the election comes around. So uh, I think all eyes will be glued to the TV uh, come early November. Great. Well, um, that's all That's all we've got time for. But uh, thank you, Richard. And, uh, and back to you. Welcome back to GCP40, where our guest co-host is Stephen Bellman of AXA XL. Another area, Steve, that Ellen uh, did speak about on GCP39 and other guests have touched on uh, in this series is is not just the number of new captives being formed uh, this year, but the expanding use of existing captives as well. If if clients or captive owners are are taking on more risk or new lines, how is this changing the the kind of conversations that you're having with those captive owners regarding uh, reinsurance, uh, co-insurance or quota shares or, or other kinds of reinsurance arrangements? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, we, we have um, around the world, we have the capability of working with captives around so many different lines of business. And I think captives now are, are in that place where they can really run any kind of line of business through their captive, presuming they have partners to work with that confront that and kind of co-insurance and reinsurance. And, and so we, we play that role. Um, you know, f- for us, um, working hand in hand with a client and their captive is, is really, it, it kind of builds a relationship and gets much closer to the, to the client. And, and that's why we think it's better business for us. So, so it's really encouraging for us to see so many more lines of business going through captives. I wouldn't say it's, it's just this year's phenomenon, but it's been the last couple of years where we've mm. seen that, that growth and that breadth of coverages going into captives. And we, we think it's good on many fronts. One, you know, it, it gives a captive the diversity within that, that, that insurance company that we think is, is a more prudent business plan. You know, if you look at us as a, as a large global insurance company, we are so well diversified with so many lines of business, right? And so a lot of that is not correlated. And so therefore it gives us that diversity of risk, which is a good long-term plan. I think as captives now develop that out, I think it's better for them to to build their long-term plan and be diversified in the risk they take in. And it, and it gives them the ability to uh, fund more over time, so many more lines of business, and, and, and the, their their long-term success is is assured that much more uh, because of that, that good that good diversity uh, around the world and by coverage. Well, one of the areas we're seeing, obviously, a lot of talk and chatter about is um, captives writing uh, new kinds of risks. Obviously, pandemics is the obvious one and the topical one that springs to mind. But also, we know that captives are often used and can be used or should be used effectively for 
mitigating uh, risks and uh, mitigating new risks that they're writing. How, how do you expect to see captives used as, as an outlet for, for mitigating these new risks, such as pandemics, for example? Yeah, you know, the, the, the pandemics and the uh, infectious disease uh, obviously is on the forefront of everybody's mind now. You know, I, I predict that this will be a long-term staple within captives uh, as we move forward. I think you'll see captive utilization really start to ramp up and increase in this area. And not only for the risk of loss itself, but also for the, for all the, the mitigating possibilities around this risk and potential. I think you'll see, you'll see captives get much more involved. I think we're seeing that also with cyber. You mentioned other coverages, you know, just because we're in a pandemic, other things don't go away. We still have cyber concerns. We still have earthquake concerns. You know, we still have inland transit concerns and, and every other concern that we've always had. So, you know, those don't go away. We have to tackle this new problem. And I think the industry is obviously moving in that direction. I think new captives and mature captives uh, are going to find a lot of business in the future in pandemics, in cyber, and 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 getting back to that diversification, being more diversified, I think is going to be the key for captives as they're moving forward. Uh, you know, for, for us, it, it really allows us to kind of use all of our assets around the world on a very broad basis. So, you know, so our, our captive utilization isn't just exclusively in a couple lines of business, but it can potentially be in all lines of business. And we, we definitely see that uh, see that playing out. As respects to emerging risks like pandemic and like cyber, you know, the captives are in such a, a much better place now to handle this because of, of, of the matureness of captives, because of the long history of captives, because of the, the confidence that captives have in senior leadership and, and the C-suite and the capital and surplus that they've built up over the years. I think for the captive world and captive utilization, the stage is set to, to continue to, to be and provide the solutions, you know, for these, uh, for these insureds long into the future. The other, the other term or you know, hot topic term of 2020 is, is kind of uh, you know, resilience and, and enhancing resilience, not just of organizations, but of, of you know, nation states and governments and institutions. How, how do you see captives playing a role in this new sense of resiliency at organizations? Of course, they're going to provide, uh, hopefully be providing more you know, higher levels of insurance and different kinds of coverage, as, as you've touched upon. But how can captives play a role, do you think, in, the, in a new sense of resiliency? Well, this is the new era that we're in. I mean, this is, this is the new normal. It's going to be a new requirement for increased resiliency, uh, not only in our personal lives, but for corporations and businesses as well. And I think, you know, captives are, are so well positioned to be a key, a key component and an essential tool in corporate risk management uh, in this new era of, of resiliency. We're, we're learning now to, to be more flexible and adapt and do things on the fly, like everybody all of a sudden going remote and working remote and virtual. Uh, you know, corporations are, gonna be, are, are being flexible as well. And I think that the more they use their captive in this area, the, the more the corporation will be able to embrace this new resiliency. Fantastic. Well, Steve, that is all we have time for uh, this week. I'd like to say thank you to all of our guests, uh, including Chris Dial and Punit Patel of London Capital for their Q3 investment update. And of course, you, Stephen Bauman, thank you for coming on to the pod. Well, thank you, Richard. It's, it's been my pleasure as always. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.